You're listening to the Doheny Podcast Network. The Doheny Eye Institute, working for all to see. Your host is Jody Becker. My guest is Dr. Kostub Ghosh. He's joined the Doheny faculty recently, having arrived by a very unusual route, which we'll talk about in this episode. His research focused on vascular inflammation, deploys nanomedicine and expertise in biomechanics, and looks to make advances in early detection of two of the leading causes of vision loss, age-related macular degeneration, and diabetic retinopathy. And his work could have broad implications even beyond ophthalmology. He's a bioengineer, most recently with a lab at UC Riverside. Prior to that, he was at Harvard as a postdoctoral fellow in vascular biology. He received his PhD at SUNY Stony Brook, and first he studied chemical engineering at the National Institute of Technology in India. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Jody. So as I was saying in the opening of the episode, you are a mechanobiologist and you take an interdisciplinary approach, or as you like to say, holistic approach to solving problems in ophthalmology. Can you describe the evolution of your research and how you landed at Doheny? Because it's a wonderful story and you began in cardiac. Correct. So um, I'll just take a few steps further back. I was trained as a chemical engineer in my undergraduate degree. Um, Then I moved to SUNY Stony Brook for my PhD. And that was the first time I had a proper research experience um, in a disease pathogenesis area. And I studied wound healing for my PhD. Then I I became more interested in vascular biology. And fortunately, I got an opportunity to work with Don Ingber at Harvard um, in the vascular mechanobiology area. And then I started thinking about getting some ideas of my own that would enable me to create my own niche as I set up my lab. Because one of the key things you want to do as an independent PI or principal investigator is to be quite distinct from your roots so that you get identified for your unique signature research. In doing so, when I set up my lab at UC Riverside in the Department of Bioengineering back in 2011, I was looking for a a proper disease question that I could sort of concentrate on and work for a few years and basically make a name for myself in. Um, I started out in the cardiovascular field um, simply because as a vascular mechanobiologist, it was a natural choice. Why? Because we all know that the heart beats, so it's a mechanically active organ. You know that when the heart beats, it pumps blood through the blood vessels. So there's flow of the blood. Whenever there's flow, there's a sheer force acting against a stationary wall of the blood vessel. And so intuitively, it's easier to imagine that anything in and around the blood vessels or any conduit that allows the blood to flow through is going to experience mechanical forces, either in the form of contractile um, force resulting from the heartbeat or or shear stress um, resulting from the flow of the blood through the blood vessels. And so it became a natural sort of a topic to focus on. We went for about a year, a little over a year, and then I attended a garden um, research conference on vascular biology up in Ventura. And that's where I bumped into my Harvard colleague who works on eye. 
she went over the posters that my graduate students from Riverside had put up. And they were all related to vascular inflammation and mechanobiology. Seeing that, she said, well, Kostov, if your work is so intrinsically related to vascular inflammation, which already was quite distinct from what I had done as a postdoc, she argued that I should be using these, this knowledge, these concepts in understanding um, two of the major common eye diseases, namely AMD, age-related macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy. At the time, I had no clue about eye diseases. I never had envisioned I would get into the field. So obviously I started asking her why she thought it would be relevant. She gave numerous scientific contexts, but the one that honestly got me most at, at sort of attracted to the field was the opportunity to get um, large NIH R01 grants. Um, and it's simply because uh, National Eye Institute is one of the major NIH um, uh, sort of uh, institutes that funds um, ophthalmology and vision research um, grants. Uh, they have a relatively high funding success. And I was into my second year of uh, assistant professorship at UC Riverside. And one of the key things that you always dream about is getting a large grant early on. Because that allows you to expand rapidly, allows you to envision moving to a more rigorous research environment, if that's something you desire, and get a name for yourself. And I was very ambitious back then, I still am, but I think I'm a little more chilled than I was at the time. Um, and so that all, all those factors contributed to this one cohesive idea that probably there's something here that I should look more deeply into. I came back and I started looking at the literature the scientific body of evidence of what's already known in these fields. And I realized that the approach that has so far um, been taken in understanding and treating these conditions has been very, I would say, unilateral in the sense it's either uh, the focus has been predominantly either on the role of inflammatory cytokines or very conventionally acceptable um, factors. Um, this is the case in diabetic retinopathy. Now, if you look at AMD, it's even more poorly understood. Why? A key reason is that the disease is age-related macular degeneration. So it's the degeneration of the macula, which is the central portion of the retina. Now, in, in primates and non-human primates, there is a macula in the retina. Whereas in rodents, such as mice and rats, which are the most commonly animal, uh, used animal models in research, there is no macula. So given the fact that these are the most commonly studied animals in biomedical research, yet they don't have a macula, immediately reduces the number of experimental studies one can perform in an animal's setting. And that has significantly become, become a major bottleneck in AMD research. And so when I was putting both these two um, sort of literature backgrounds in context, the first thing that occurred to me is that it is of course very poorly understood. Second, the understanding that we have so far is very focused on the genetic and soluble factors. Now, I was trained as an engineer. So when I look at things, I look at things from an engineering perspective. One of the things is the role of mechanical forces, such as the difference in the stiffness, 
For example, a pillow is soft, a brick is stiff. And so these changes in the stiffness, they have a profound role in regulating tissue behavior and controlling the progression of many diseases. A very commonly studied disease has been cancer um, from the context of mechanical forces. So knowing that mechanical forces have the ability to influence um, health and disease, and that that has been very poorly understood in the context of these eye diseases, I decided to invest my lab's resources in this. We started asking some fundamental questions. And then one thing at a time, we started doing studies in vitro, meaning using um, cell cultures that are easier to perform. We collected some critical piece of data, attended vision research conferences, spoke with potential collaborators. Many of them, of course, were extremely critical of us, but managed to turn at least one major critic into our strongest ally, and then started submitting grants, um, got a lot of grant rejects, and eventually landed this auto one um, in 2017 that obviously changed the course of the lab's research program. And that R01 not only allowed us to gain some recognition among the vision research and ophthalmology community, it also paved the way for my transition to UCLA and Doheny Eye Institute. And through that entire path, um, I now find myself here. Can I ask you, what are the questions that you felt were the most pressing or Maybe I should be asking you today, what are the questions that you feel are most pressing? I think the most important question is what happens at the early stages of these diseases? And these questions or this question is very important because the most successful therapies that are out on the market right now for both the advanced stage of AMD and diabetic retinopathies is anti-VEGF. And this is a molecule um, that is, whose levels or production increases in the late stages of diseases. And it contributes to the multiplication and leakiness of blood vessels in the, in the eye. Both AMD and diabetic retinopathy show this manifestation, meaning excessive multiplication and leakiness of the blood vessels in the eye. And so this one drug, anti-VEGF, that works in advanced stages of diabetic retinopathy also works in advanced stages of AMD. However, the key factor that we have to keep in mind is that it also doesn't work in a large population of patients. If you look at the diabetic retinopathy population, the patient group, almost 40% of individuals with advanced diabetic retinopathy do not benefit well from anti-VEGF. Whereas if you look at the patient population that have AMD, only 15% of all AMD patients get that advanced stage where this anti-VEGF will become useful, which means the rest of the 85% of the, A the AMD population has the early stage of AMD for which there's no therapy. And so the major question that is currently un sort of unaddressed is, what happens at the early stages of diabetic retinopathy and AMD? And this question is important 
Because if we understand that, we probably don't have to rely so much on anti-VEGF. In other words, we don't have to put all the eggs in one basket. We can actually spread our resources across a wider spectrum of therapeutic approaches and hope for a better therapeutic outcome in the clinic. Is it really a question of diagnostics? Not quite. I think both these conditions um, can be seen coming from an early stage. It's just that we don't fully understand what drives these sort of early um, markers. For example, if you are um, looking at AMD in the early stages, simply by doing a very routine fundus photography, an ophthalmologist can easily see drusen. These are yellow punctate dots that appear in the central region of the retina called the macula. If you look at diabetic retinopathy, you just inject fluorescein. It's called fluorescein angiography. It's a very routinely used technique by ophthalmologists. And you can see the tor tortuous nature of some of the retinal vessels, some um, microaneurysms, and some areas where there's insufficient flow of, of the dye, indicating that the, the vasculature, the blood vessels there, are collapsing. And so you can see these early manifestations, yet how exactly we get to that stage is poorly understood. And unless we understand that, we can never block this early development of these conditions. Can you talk to us a little bit about the work in your lab now at Doheny? We are working on two different projects. One is related to diabetic retinopathy. One is related to age-related macular degeneration. Now, obviously, these diseases are quite distinct. But at the end stage, there's this one common manifestation in both AMD and diabetic retinopathy, and that is excessive multiplication and leakiness of the blood vessels in the eye. Now, if we want to understand how, to, how these diseases get that far, we have to backtrack in a way and try to understand what happens in the earlier stages and sort of identify the trail of events that takes us to the advanced stage. When we backtrack, what we find is from the literature that both the early stages of diabetic retinopathy and AMD have another important similarity at the early stage. So the similarity of the late stages, blood vessels multiply and become leaky. The similarity of the early stage is that there's an extensive loss of blood vessels in the eye in both these conditions. So how do you go from excessive loss of blood vessels to excessive multiplication of blood vessels? Well, it's, a, it's like a chain of events. When you have excessive loss of blood vessels at the early stages, it leads to hypoxia, shortage of oxygen in the, in the retina. And because of that hypoxic environment that follows, there's a compensatory increase in blood vessel numbers. The molecule that the retinal cells produce for that compensatory increase in vessel growth is VEGF. But it turns out that VEGF is not only a vessel multiplication factor, it also makes blood vessels leaky. That's what takes us to the advanced stage. So now we have this similarity between AMD at the early stages of AMD and diabetic retinopathy in the sense there's extensive blood vessel loss. Question is, what causes these vessels to collapse in the early stages? Right at that particular sort of stage of the question is where we take slightly different routes 
to address this question. So we have one question we are addressing, but acknowledging that diabetic retinopathy has different risk factors compared to AMD, we now slightly take, take slightly different routes. For diabetic retinopathy, we're trying to understand whether and to, and if so, to what extent does changes in the stiffness of the blood vessels contribute to the increased vascular collapse seen in the early stages. The reason why we are asking about the role of vascular stiffness is obviously because that's sort of our central bias that many things in the body are affected by the stiffness of the tissues. But previous studies had shown from the cardiovascular field that diabetes causes an increase in the stiffness of major vessels in, in and around the heart, such as the aorta and arteries. And this increased stiffness of these large vessels corresponds to an increased risk for atherosclerosis or hypertension, major cardiovascular um, risk factors. And so we, we see all those correlations in the heart. We also acknowledge that diabetes or hyperglycemia is a systemic risk factor because blood is flowing through every single blood vessel in the body. And so every single tissue is experiencing high glucose. So we asked if the aorta around the heart is getting stiffer in diabetes, is it possible that the retinal vessels in the eye could also become stiffer in diabetes? And if so, could that stiffness contribute to the collapse? We use a technique called atomic force microscopy. This is a technique borrowed from physics. And when we measure the stiffness, we find that the blood vessels isolated from the retinas of diabetic mice are almost three times as stiff as those from the normal mice. And when I say stiff, I'm trying to say that you can think of a straw, a plastic straw turning into a plumbing pipe. It just becomes progressively stiffer. And this increased stiffness makes these blood vessels sticky. They become sticky to the circulating immune cells. And these immune cells, when they bind, they become very agitated, very activated. And this agitation or activation of these adherent immune cells causes these the cells that make the blood vessels die. And their death causes the blood vessels to collapse. So we are understanding the immune cell-dependent collapse of the blood vessels in the early stages of diabetic retinopathy from the context of increased stiffness caused by diabetes. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, what we're looking at in diabetic retinopathy. For AMD, we're asking whether aging also increases the stiffness of the blood vessels in the eye. Again, this question is derived from the corresponding findings in the cardiovascular field, where aging is also an important risk factor for atherosclerosis, hypertension, and in the aorta and the arteries around the heart, the aged vessels are significantly stiffer. So we asked whether that increased stiffness could also sort of be manifested in the eye. And we find the same thing. In this case, we work with cells that we harvest from old, young and old monkeys from a collaborator up in Oregon. They have an Oregon uh, National Climate Research Center and they have a large colony of rhesus monkeys. 
We characterize those monkeys by fundus photography, and then we group them under young normal, old normal, or old with AMD. And then we isolate the cells and we sort of characterize their stiffness. And we find that indeed these cells are, from the AMD eyes, are much stiffer compared to the younger cells. And this increased stiffness corresponds to inflammation-mediated degeneration of these cells. Going back to again explain probably how these blood vessels in these old AMD monkey eyes could be sort of undergoing degeneration, whereas the young normal cells are protected. So in a nutshell, we are trying to look at the role of diabetes and age-associated vascular stiffening in the vascular loss in the early stages of these two conditions. So doctor, I was just going to ask you before you started talking about the primate research about collaborations. I'm wondering if you're working with colleagues internationally and also about patient treatment and outcomes. But let's start first with any collaborations you might have with colleagues around the world working in labs on similar questions. We don't have any international collaborations yet. Our collaborators are all based out of the U.S., but they do span some very important, I would say, research boundaries. For example, our collaborator up in Oregon, they have access to a very, very prized possession, I would say, a prized asset um, in, in the shape of this Oregon National Primate Research Center, where they have a 4,500-strong um, rhesus monkey colony. Um, where these monkeys share the same genetic risk factors as humans. And so we have ready access to those eyes. And that gives us an immense advantage for our research because the kind of tissues and samples we have access to, it's uh, not available in many places around the world. So that's what we do for our AMD collaboration. For diabetic retinopathy, you can argue that it's it's it started out as a as a very important collaboration with um, uh, uh, an investigator now at UC Irvine, but now we are growing in the sort of progressively independent. Although we always try to look for new avenues for expanding our research, and as a consequence, keep identifying collaborators. But right now, our collaborators are all all within the U.S. And can you tell me at this stage in the work, do you have a sense of the kind of application there would be in developing patient treatment? Our first goal is to understand the mechanistic basis of this vascular loss in the early stages of diabetic retinopathy and AMD. And the idea and the hope is that understanding the molecular mechanisms that drive this vascular stiffening response and the associated loss of blood vessels will help us identify new therapeutic targets. New, I say new, because we are looking at vascular stiffness and mechanobiology um, as a new avenue to get into this eye field. And then once we have these molecular targets that could be then sort of um, used to develop new drugs, then the, the hope and idea would be to be able to convert these research findings into small molecules that could be administered through eye drops that would locally sort of reduce the, the stiffness of the blood vessels in the eye and suppress inflammation. 
the good thing about the, the research that we're doing, and I would say that goes to just about anybody who's focusing on the early stage, is the advanced stages of diabetic retinopathy and AMD, they take quite some time to develop and manifest. And so by the time a person is conventionally declared old or diabetic, it takes still about 10 to 15 years for the advanced stages to manifest, which means it gives us quite some time to be able to go in with these new, hopefully these newly identified um, drug targets and, and therapeutic molecules to at least slow down the progression of these conditions. I'm curious as a researcher, a scientist who was able to shift his gaze and sort of launch in a new direction, I'm wondering, have you found surprises in your research that didn't exactly match your hypothesis? Since we are still considered to be rather unconventional in the context of um, vision research, any finding that we make, it may not be very surprising to us per se, simply because we are um, already taking a rather mechanobiology biased approach. Um, it's just that we celebrate every finding that we get simply because it helps us consolidate our view that the eye diseases also have a very important mechanical component. But I can tell you for sure that every finding that we make and report does come as a surprise to the vision community because for them, stiffness is something that is not a very commonly understood um, risk factor. So I remember, and that 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 surprise has up until I received that large R01 grant was seen as a negative. I mean, people would just dismiss our findings because they were so surprised. But then if you if you believe in what John Nash once said, the Princetonian Nobel laureate, he said that if you have a, a if you think you have a wonderful idea, immediately tell it to your colleagues. And if you don't get the out the reaction like, are you out of your mind? Are you crazy? Immediately go and change your idea because that means it's not innovative enough. And so when we started making these mechanobiology findings and he was to tell, I mean, I, I know senior investigators looking at me and saying that, are you saying that everything that I have done is, is wrong and misleading because I've not considered stiffness? And then calming them down and then trying to explain our findings from their perspective was something that I had to do quite a lot simply because they were so surprised. But we were less surprised. We were just more satisfied. Satisfied because of the general understanding that if the stiffness of tissues and blood vessels can promote or trigger cardiovascular diseases or cancer, how far-fetched could it be to imagine that it could also play a role in vision diseases? And so for us, it was just an ultimate confirmation that, no, this is a really important factor. So it rather, I would say, rather than surprising, it consolidated our vision that, no, this stiffness thing is not just an artifact. This is a major driver of disease progression. And the vision community better take it seriously. And now they are. That's why I'm here perfect place to land this conversation. So fascinating. Thank you so much. Dr. Costa Ghosh, his research at the frontiers of ophthalmology is focused on understanding early stage eye disease and making advances in vision science at the Doheny Eye Institute. 
Thank you so much for taking us behind the scenes to understand your interdisciplinary approach and the work in your lab. I hope you'll come back. Thank you very much for having me. If you'd like to support the work of the Doheny Eye Institute, please visit the website at doheny.org. The Doheny Eye Institute, at the forefront in eradicating eye disease for nearly 70 years, is dedicated to providing state-of-the-art clinical services and supporting leading researchers in the quest for treatments that stabilize and improve the precious sense of sight. Doheny is now affiliated with UCLA Stein Eye Institute. For more information about our doctors and their innovative work in the quest for better vision, visit our website, doheny.org.